Listen, I get it. There are about a hundred different Bible study apps and guides out there, but I want to tell you about one that you may not have heard of yet, Yarrow. Yarrow offers beautifully designed inductive Bible studies and a digital app that guides you through scripture so that you can know what it says and understand what it means for your actual life. No matter where you're coming from or what season of life you're in, Yarrow is the Bible study guide that will help you unearth the truth of scripture so that it can take root in your heart and propel you deeper in your relationship with God. Go check out their first study, Known, which is all about your identity in Christ at yarrow.org. They are offering 10% off with the code JOURNEYWOMEN10. So go to yarrow.org and use the code JOURNEYWOMEN10 for 10% off and download the Yarrow app to study for free today. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Robbie Griggs on the topic of heaven and hell. As you'll hear, Dr. Griggs is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Director of the THM program at Covenant Seminary. We pray this episode helps you develop a more biblical understanding of life after death and that it will grow your understanding of God's character, helping you to know and love Him more. What a year it has been tackling the most important topic of all, knowing and loving God. We only have two episodes left in this series, and we would love to hear what the Lord has taught you as you've listened this year. Please shoot us an email or a direct message on social media. Our handle is at Journeywomen Podcast, or you can catch us on email at info at journeywomenpodcast.com. We would love to feature some of your responses in our final episode of this year's series. Thanks so much. Now, let's get on to my conversation with Dr. Robbie Griggs. Dr. Robbie Griggs, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you. I am so excited to have the opportunity to ask questions of you today. Uh, You're one of my friend's favorite professors at Covenant. I feel like I'm getting a seminary class as I sit here for an hour, and I bet all of your students are a little bit jealous of me right now, even though they probably have access to you through office hours and stuff like that. But thank you. I feel like I should be paying you to come join us, and you have graciously given us your time today. We're just so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about such an important topic with you. Thanks, Hunter. It's really great to be with you, and it's something I'm I'm glad to do. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I'd love it if you could tell the listeners just a little bit more about yourself. You are an associate professor of systematic theology and do a lot of other things at the seminary. And goodness, I loved reading your bio just about your background with Jewish studies and stuff like that. So could you tell them just a little bit about what your interests are and what you do professionally? Yeah, I teach systematic theology, which is really kind of asking the big questions you know, trying to make sense of how the Bible hangs together as a story, who God is, what it means to be human, where the whole story is going. And so that's the big framework. I do that as someone who's been a pastor for about 16 years, have a wife and kids, 
And, you know, it's one of those things where I get to think about deep things. I get to think about things that really matter in life for the sake of my family, for the sake of my friends, and for the sake of the church. And so that's really what I do is I I spend a lot of my time just thinking uh, for the sake of the church and for the sake of others. I love that. And not to draw this down to a very menial level, but I also saw that you think about uh, the Cardinals and St. Louis <laughs> Cardinals baseball. And I love that. I grew up going to Cardinals games. My dad was a huge Cardinals fan and my dad passed away recently from cancer. And so this topic that we're going to talk about today, heaven and hell, has been top of mind for me after losing someone that I love you know, we originally scheduled this conversation not knowing that that was even going to happen in my life. And so I just consider it such a kindness of the Lord to allow me to kind of unpack some of the questions that I personally have, because as soon as somebody passes away, you know, you immediately wonder, where are they? And what are they doing right now in this moment? Thank you for your willingness to kind of help me. How does the knowledge of heaven and hell help us to know and love God? And what does it tell us about who God is? One thing we have to start, when we ask a question like this, we have to sort of back up and say, what do we mean by heaven and hell? Mm -hmm. One of the ways I like to get at that question is, you know, in the book of Revelation at the very end, in the John's climactic vision, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. The picture is of the city of the new Jerusalem coming down in splendor as a bride, you know, just before her wedding day. And that image, I think, is a great place for, to start when we're talking about heaven and hell, because this climactic image helps us to know God as the one who sustains his creation. It's heaven and earth together that forms the last picture. Yeah, so what that says is that God has a deep commitment to caring for the things that he has made. It's the heaven and the earth that John sees there in the end. So one thing I think that we can infer from that is that we know God as creator when we think about these last things, as the one who doesn't scrap what he's made, but instead brings it to kind of a glorious future. And I, I find that really encouraging. As you say, when we're thinking about heaven and hell, one of the things we're often thinking about is the end of our lives and the end of the end of the lives of people that we care about. And it's tremendously comforting to know that God cares about the things that he has made. That's one thing I would say is that it helps us know God as the creator of all things and the one who is committed to those things. That, you know, that last, that picture too of the new heavens and the new earth, it's that newness that kind of signals towards God as redeemer too, the one who is going to perfect the things that he's made. There's a kind of a line that theologians use that gets at this where they say, God's grace does not destroy nature. His grace redeems and perfects nature. And it's a beautiful image of this idea of the new Jerusalem, the centerpiece of God's creation, like a woman ready, you know, ready for her wedding day. And I just, I find that so encouraging to know that the end of the story is not one where God is giving up on the things that he's made, but instead he is bringing them to their, to their final uh, fulfillment. Uh, 
as their redeemer, as the one who cares for them and is going to make them whole. It matters tremendously to recognize that that's where the story of the world is going. Mm-hmm. Just to get more, a little bit more specific about that last image, there are a couple of things, two, two things that really are at the heart of that last vision that are really, I think, incredible and worth thinking about. You know, Jesus himself tells John that this promise that is repeated all throughout the Bible, that God is going to be with us and that we will be his people, will be true in full. That there will be no more distance between God and humans. And in fact, in God coming to be with us fully, that's going to transform everything. There's that, of course, the famous little picture of God wiping himself, wiping away every tear. Mm-hmm. That's just a tender image of the kind of care that God has for everything that he's made and for all of his people. And I think to get into a little bit more of the theology of it, it's not just that God takes away our pain. Mm-hmm. It's that he transforms the conditions that make pain possible. Hmm. So Jesus says that death and mourning and crying and pain, all the sources of our tears will be removed. And I find that tremendously hopeful too. And I'm sure, you know, you've had a lot of tears in the last days and it's really hard when you're in the middle of grief for someone you care about to remember that God is the one who's beyond our grief and can transform it. But it's also incredibly encouraging when we can meditate on that. Yeah, 100%. I think more than ever before in my life, I've been yearning for that day. And so I think that suffering serves us in that way where it causes us to long for it. I remember when I was a young Christian, I thought, you know, I really love my life. I really want to get married. I really want to have kids one day. I don't really experience this yearning like, come Lord Jesus, that people talk about. I think, you know, everything's pretty good here. But now, uh, having walked a few more decades, I'm thinking, goodness, Jesus, would you just come back? And I'm also wondering, I think, in the wake of my grief, more about what's happening, like before he returns. Like we talk a lot about heaven and hell, I think, in the aftermath of losing someone we love, like we talked about. And then we have a lot of conversation right around that time, which is such a vulnerable point in a person's life where we're speaking Mm -hmm. kind of things about where their loved one is and all of that. And I think we all maintain a lot of misconceptions about heaven and about hell, probably as a result of that, maybe some misinformation that's distributed in trying to communicate about hard and difficult things like the loss of something that we love, maybe not even someone, it might have been a dog or something else, you know, so can you help offer a more biblical foundation? I know you've given us this picture of Revelation, but when we're talking about heaven and hell, and you know, when we're kind of referencing it in the present, not when Christ has come back, what might help us? as we're thinking, wanting to think about this more biblically? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are kind of two big issues that we have to come to grips with when we're thinking about these ultimate things. And the first one is simply the diversity of the imagery that we find in the Bible. Huh? You know, when we come to the Bible and we just look at the various places where it talks about these ultimate things, when it Mm -hmm. talks about heaven and hell, one of the things we see is diversity. We see Jesus himself uses a lot of different images to talk about ultimate things. And if we pay really careful attention to the language, we'll see that 
he's using imagery and symbolism to convey something that's true, not necessarily to give us one exact, completely consistent account of what these realities will be like. So I think sometimes the confusion is that we take things that are in the Bible and we take one limited perspective and we make it the whole thing. Yeah. And so the challenge then is to recognize you know, that we tend to do that and that there is a diversity of imagery in the Bible and that we have to take each text on kind of a case by case basis before we start making those big, broad statements about Mm -hmm. what the Bible says about any one thing. So, you know, one example of that diversity of imagery and and the tendency to, to try to kind of over systematize things is in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells a couple parables in Matthew 25 about the coming of the kingdom. The one is the parable of the 10 virgins with their lamps. And then the other one is the parable of the talents. And I don't want to go through both of those parables. I just want to point out something about how they relate to each other. At the end of the parable of the talents, Jesus borrows the image of darkness to describe the fate of the unfaithful servant and the image of darkness has been one that was in the parable of the virgins and the lamps. Right. And he says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. Now the point is not that the servants in that parable are in darkness, like the virgins who are supposed to trim their lamps for the bridegroom in the previous parable. The point that Jesus is making is that hell will be like a place of darkness where there is bitterness and deep, deep sadness. Right. And if we were to read those two parables and try to make all the imagery fit, we would be like, wait, why are the servants in darkness? (laughs) You know, darkness was the previous parable. And so we have to, I think, come to grips with the diversity of the imagery and we have to pay att- really careful attention to how it's working and what the points are that are being made about these things. So I wonder, you know, I just wonder, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I just was thinking, that's why I so appreciate talking to systematic theologians like yourself, because you're able to take, okay, what does the whole Bible say about this particular topic, which is yeah. really helpful when you're trying to get a better grasp about making like big doctrinal statements about a thing like heaven or hell. And I think hell is one of those topics that at least I personally, Dr. Griggs, find myself shying away from, particularly when I'm talking to unbelievers. This is getting really vulnerable just because it seems like such a difficult thing to try and understand, like, how could a loving God, when we're trying to present to them, like, hey, like, you know, uh, Jesus died for your sins, like, he loved you so much that he came down, like, how could a loving God also send people who have not placed their faith and trust in him or those who are not his, like, to hell? So how does knowing that hell exists and growing in a biblical understanding of hell actually help us to know and love God? Yeah, I think one question there that we have to come to grips with is, or one issue there, is that the doctrine of hell should make us uncomfortable. Mm. If you pay attention to Jesus's words and you, you know, if you just did a word search through the Gospels and you looked at all the places that he talked about it and you and you read those, there would be a lot of things in there that not only would make us uncomfortable, it would make Jesus's original hearers uncomfortable. It's one of those things that is uncomfortable because it's talking about some of the deepest negative experiences that we can have, right? So, 
you know, because the language of hell, so if we were to just look at Jesus's language, you know, we were talking earlier about diversity of imagery. The other thing we've got to talk about is unity of imagery. And if we were looking at how Jesus talked about, or unity of theme, maybe, if we were looking at how Jesus talked about hell, one of the things we would see is that hell is really meant to point out that life matters, that there are consequences to how we live, and that because God is good, there are ultimate consequences for our lives because our lives are so valuable. And so when Jesus is talking about hell, it's intense and it's uncomfortable because he's talking about things that really matter. One of the things that the doctrine of hell and the imagery of hell helps us see, and it's kind of, it's a little bit counterintuitive. It's really vital for the church and it's vital for us if we're going to be good friends, because uh, even with unbelievers, we want to be good friends and we want to truly love them. And that means we're going to end up experiencing hard things together. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that this doctrine helps us see is that God loves his creation and his creatures. That means he's not going to forever tolerate the destruction of the things that he's made and that he loves. So it tells us that, tells Christians that we should live lives of repentance and trust in Jesus in this time of God's patience, in this time of God's forbearance, as Paul says in Romans 2. It's that thing that says how you live matters, what God has made matters, and we can't make peace with sin because ultimately sin leads to the loss of everything we care about. Mm -hmm. It's an important doctrine because it it underlines the value of life and it underlines the value of the things that God has made. Maybe it's with me growing older, Dr. Griggs, maybe just more aware of like what's going on in the world and like of hardship and suffering and of wrongdoing and of evil and injustice. All of these things, I've begun to see the doctrine of hell as a comfort in knowing that God will bring about judgment. So can you talk a little bit about the purpose of judgment? When I think about judgment, I often think about God judging like evil things like, yay, do it, do it, you know. But then when I think about the potential for facing judgment individually, I'm like, oh, don't do it. Even though I know, obviously, I am going to be judged based on the performance of his son, Jesus. What's the purpose of judgment? And will both believers and unbelievers face it? Yeah, I think to talk a little bit more about uh, hell in relation to judgment and to pick up on something you were just saying, you know, there's a wonderful book by the theologian uh, Miroslav Volf that's called Exclusion and Embrace. And it was written back in the early 90s. And there were kind of two contexts for that book. One was the ethnic cleansing in Eastern Europe. And Wolf is from that area of the world. You know, if you don't know the history of that, there's some truly horrific things that were happening. And then also he was teaching at Fuller Seminary at the time in LA and the LA race riots were happening at that time. And one of the things that Wolf reflects on in that book is how often people, modern people struggle with wrath because we're relatively insulated from truly horrific things. Hmm. And what he says is that God's people throughout the ages who've been exposed to some of the worst things of life do take comfort in a God who can and will judge. And as you rightly say, that turns it back on us and asks, and makes us ask the question, you know, what is my relation to these things that God says he, he will judge? And it also turns us then to his provision for that in Jesus. But I think that's the purpose of judgment is ultimately 
the display of God's love for the things that he's made. We understand that. And we understand that by analogy. You know, those of us who are, who are in families or remember what it was like when our parent, when we experienced our parents' wrath, often that was because they loved our family and they loved us and they loved the order and their anger was an expression of their love in most cases. It was to reaffirm what it looked like for us to be a fully functioning, flourishing family unit. And so the purpose of judgment is it's a display of God's love for the things that he's made. And when we talk about the final judgment, right, which I think is kind of the question you're getting at, this is where we have to pause and kind of, again, think about our language. This is going to be a theme for me, but judgment language is kind of law court language, right? You're in there and the judge and you've got a trial and there's a verdict and there's a result. And then, you you know, there's the, the results of the verdict. And so when we think about the final judgment in that way, or we think about it like a trial, we can sort of think of kind of God like investigating us, you know, and and trying to figure out what we've done. But totally. I always think of like a screen that comes up and it's just like, there was Hunter's terrible moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we all find that troubling because, you know, if, <laughs> if life were like a cartoon and we were all walking about with thought bubbles above our head, we would not want be a people to be able to see those. No. Know? But I think the biblical picture of the final judgment is a little bit different. Praise God. Well, it's it's complicated. <laughs> oh, don't get too excited, Hunter. <laughs> it's, it's good and bad. The biblical imagery all suggests that God already knows perfectly who and what we are. So if you think about one of those famous texts, like in Hebrews 4, where we, we hear that the word of God is living and active, right? And what the word does is it divides indivisible things. Well, the result of that, the author of Hebrews says, is so that we're rendered naked before God to whom we are to give account. And so the word of God is actually living and active to judge the things that are internal to us, to disclose the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why in the very next breath, the author of Hebrews says, depend on your high priest, Jesus, who intercedes for you. So the final judgment is not about investigation. It's primarily about three things. And the first thing is to magnify God's sovereign care as the creator of all things. So the disclosure of the final destiny of all humans is really meant to magnify who God is. And so that's the first thing, you know, it's that the one with whom we've had to do this whole time, the one that stood behind all of our experiences is God. And he's the one to whom we owe our ultimate accounting of our lives. The second thing that we find, and, and there are a number of biblical texts that talk that way, you know, anytime you see the language of the day of judgment or that day, it's primarily magnifying God's sovereign care and his authority to judge. But there are kind of two other minor notes that come from that. The second one is the degree of reward or punishment for each human being. So we already talked about that a little bit when we talked about the parable of the talents. And then finally, the final judgment is the place where God will assign each person his final place. Do you ever find yourself so busy that you can't find time to prioritize God's word? Dwell Bible app can help you out. With Dwell, I can listen to and meditate on the scriptures in the car, in the middle of the night, or while I'm making meals and tending to the needs of our household. Incorporating the Bible into everyday moments is so easy with Dwell. 
I am constantly using the playlists on walks or as I fall asleep to review the scripture that I have been memorizing. The soothing background music, the ability to select your preferred translation or narrator, the sleep timer, and the read-along feature with Dwell make it the most helpful Bible reading app on the market. Their newest release is called Dwell Daily, and it will help you immerse yourself in the Word, pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for 25% off. The other question you asked, will both believers and unbelievers face it? The biblical picture is yes, that it's universal and it concerns all people for all things. So, you know, Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17 that there's a day when Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, everyone must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive whatever is due for what we've done in the body. And so, yeah, everyone is going to be subject to it. But one of the things you said that how that idea turns us back to the Lord and back to dependence on God, there's a lovely answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, which was one of these reformational era catechisms, where it says that we can confidently await as judge the very one who had already stood trial in our place before God and so removed the whole curse from us. So the one who's our judge is also the one who's our savior. And that means we should have confidence. We should have confidence to stand before God. Mm. This is like so sobering and also so hopeful at the same time. Like it makes me want to read my Bible and like seek to fight sin like with a vigor in my life. And it also just makes me want to lay my head down and rest in knowing that Christ has already fought that battle and that he's won the victory on my behalf. So that is really encouraging. The next question that I naturally have as you're talking about this final judgment is like, okay, well, once we have that final place, like you talked about, what's it going to be like? What's hell going to be like for those who don't know and love God? And what will heaven be like for those who do? Yeah, again, this is one of those places where we have to recognize the diversity of the imagery and ask, what are the themes that hold these images together? And the basic point is that there are kind of two big things. So if we just, you know, talked about how Jesus talks about these things, the way Jesus talks about hell is through this imagery of fire. So the word Gehenna, which refers to a place of fire, and this is not something that's new to Jesus. You know, the Jewish theologians of the day, many of them referred to this kind of ultimate place as Gehenna. And so that's, it's a part of Jesus's teaching that has an overlap with other teachers of his day. And the point of that imagery is to think of it as a maximally uncomfortable place, mm. as a place where comfort is withdrawn, mm. right? The point isn't kind of necessarily the literalistic, you're burning. The thing that we always think of in our head, fire and, you know, just gates. Right. <laughs> right. And if we pause and see how the imagery works, right? So if we go back to Matthew 25, where he says that the unworthy servant's going to be cast into outer darkness. Mm-hmm. And this is where we have to take Im- each image and say, what's it, what's it presenting? And the imagery of fire is presenting maximal discomfort. It's a whole person thing. It's not simply body. It's also heart and mind. That's the way the Bible talks about it. And when you look at, even when you look at that final image from Revelation 21, 
you know, when we move from that initial picture of New Jerusalem, you move into the status of those who don't know the Lord and those who do. And there is the brief reference to the lake of fire there, even in, in Revelation 21. And so the common theme that holds it all together is enduring discomfort and experience of divine displeasure. Hmm. It's God's love that is not experienced as love, but is experienced as hatred. Mm. So yeah, it's deep and it's sobering. It makes me just want to go tell every person that I know about Jesus, because it is helpful to think about these things, because it can fuel us and motivate us to speak to the hope that we have. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the hope that we do have as those who profess faith in Christ and who are part of God's family, what do we have to look forward to? What is heaven going to be like for us? This is one of those things where it's a delight because the Bible uses very earthy image for the new heavens and the new earth. You know, God takes things that we know and that we experience. And just as hell is like a maximal discomfort. Heaven is like maximal joy. And it's like joy that doesn't stop and doesn't end. And so you see all throughout the Bible, this amplification of created realities. So that's one side of it. The imagery is meant to make us think of something that is truly delightful and then imagine how it could be greater. The other part of it, though, is one of the ways that we imagine how it could be greater is by a subtraction of those things that diminish our experience of the created reality. So, you know, one way of thinking about heaven is it's like a new heavens and a new earth or the new heavens and the new earth where sin is not there. Sickness is not there. Death is not there. And so all these things that condition our experience of good things are removed as you mentioned, you mentioned car- the Cardinals, right? And it's been a little while since we've had unalloyed joy. It's been, you know, 2011 since <laughs> since we won a World Series. You know, imagine with David Freeze's triple in game six and his home run. Imagine if we'd won the series then and you could just take that moment and put it on pause and keep the experience of the elation that you felt at that time And not just keep it, but amplify it. Hmm. That's what the biblical imagery is pointing towards. It's pointing towards this idea that our joy will never cease and it will always multiply. It's a hard thing to wrap your mind around because joy is always fleeting in this life. And yet that's what the picture is. And it also, there's a spatial aspect to it, right? That joy is not just a joy in God's creation. It's a joy in God's presence in his creation. So the gap between us and God, uh, where he is, you know, invisible and we are not with him and do not see him is closed such that we are in his presence and experience the fullness of the divine love. Are you looking to boost your protein intake in the new year? Many of us are not getting enough protein, especially at breakfast. So PrepDish wants to help you out. For the month of January, PrepDish is offering bonus protein boost meal plans when you sign up. This free bonus shows you how to quickly prep four protein-rich dinners and one breakfast to help you reach your protein goals. Each menu will have you covered for the whole week. 
You guys, these meals are super mouthwatering and delicious. They have slow cooker carnitas bowls, stuffed pepper soup, and a Swiss chard mushroom and goat cheese frittata. Just imagine coming home to a ready-for-you protein-rich meal to refuel after a long day at work. This is a limited time offer, so make sure to sign up before the end of January to get these free bonus meal plans. Head into your healthiest year yet, feeling confident that dinner is planned, prepped, and will sustain you for all the things you have going that day with Prep Dish. Check it out and get a two-week free trial at PrepDish.com slash journey. Remember, for the month of January, anyone who signs up gets the Protein Boost Meal Plan bonus. Again, that's PrepDish.com slash journey for two weeks free plus bonus menus. How does knowing that eternity is coming and knowing that that's what we have to look forward to increase our knowledge and love for God today? Like, how does it impact our everyday reality on this side of eternity? Yeah, I think one of the things it does is it, so we're talking about eschatology. Eschatology is just the doctrine of the last things. And one of the things that theologians say sometimes is that eschatology is for ethics. In other words, having an idea of how think where things are going is meant to inform how we live now. Hmm. And one of the things I think meditating on these things does for us is it gives us a certain posture within the world. So we can delight in all of the good things that God has made, despite the fact that they're tainted by sin, despite the fact that our experience of them is fleeting. And that means that we can just enjoy what God has made. And that really living a holy life is about uh, loving God and the things that he's made. I was just talking to Matt Smethurst a couple of weeks ago, and he pointed out, you know, that one of the old hymns that many of us know and love says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And there's a book out now called Strangely Bright. And it's about that very topic, how like the things of earth that we do enjoy, give us a small picture of what's to come, like give us a glimpse of glory. Yeah, I was riding around uh, last week with one of my boys and we were, where we live, we've got a lot of old trees and there are a lot of beautiful leaves right now. And and there's kind of two ways to look at that. Isn't it sad that these leaves are dying? Hmm. And isn't it beautiful what they are? You know, and so much of life has that quality to it where we treasure the good thing and yet we're aware that thing has limits. And I think thinking about ultimate things and seeing God beyond that and knowing that his intention is to perfect the things that he's made actually helps us live responsibly and not turn the things he's made into idols or ultimate things, but to truly enjoy them as, as from him. How do you talk to your kids about heaven and hell? I can't tell you, Dr. Griggs, how many times I got this message just in being someone who's kind of in public Christian ministry after having walked through this with my dad. There's a lot of people walking through uh, the same circumstance and they're just trying to figure out like, man, number one, I don't have a great grasp on you know what's to come. And I don't really feel like I understand fully what people mean when they say like, well, he's gone to heaven or this, that, or the other. I certainly don't know how to turn around and talk to my kids about it. So how do you handle those conversations in your family? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing I would say is that 
as parents, we have to normalize talking about beautiful things and hard things. And so we have to treat our little people as little people and dignify their experience of the world so that as they get older, they know that we care about what they think and that we we're not condescending to them. We're not patronizing of them. We take them seriously, even though they're not where we are. You know, we don't dismiss their concerns. So that's the first thing I think is to create a context where you talk about beautiful and hard things with your kids. I think the second thing on this topic particularly is to help them see kind of how these ultimate things really do underline that even though this life isn't ultimate, it does matter. You know, and then dialing into their experiences that where they're wrestling with that, you know, yeah, buddy, you really went for that thing that you really care about and you didn't get it. And it was good that you went for it. And it's really sad that you didn't get it. Our experience of creation can, you know, in that moment where we really go something for something and we really treasure something and we don't get it. There are two kind of responses. One is to say, I'm going to protect myself from that. I'm going to have a cynical outlook towards the things God has made. And I'm going to say these things don't matter. These things don't matter. I'm not going to try for them. The other one is to have the overly optimistic thing that that ignores the fact that you didn't get it and just says, I'll get it next time. Mm. I'll get it next time. And the thing that this doctrine does and the reality that is behind it, it is it underlines two things. One is there's tremendous glory in this world and we should, we should aim for it. Hmm. And there's tremendous loss. Uh And the God who is behind both of those things loves us, cares about us, understands what it's like uh, for us to lose things and ultimately is going to magnify the good and take away the loss. You know, in light of what I've just walked through, I'm learning more about that tension. It's led to a a deeper joy. It's also led to a deeper sadness. So Mm -hmm. how should this knowledge of heaven and hell and even um, just being willing to embrace the tension of the already and the not yet influence the way that we walk through grief and suffering? Yeah, as you say, I mean, I think it does magnify it because we recognize the things that are lost through our fallen condition and in our experience of a world that is not as it should be. I think the first thing that we have to do is, is to let our grief and our suffering be what it is. Which is so hard. It's very hard. And I think for Christians, that means being the kind of people who sit in the questions and don't run straight for the answers to follow the pattern of biblical lament, uh, which often spends a long time with the reality of the brokenness of the world and of sin and evil before moving to the resolution of these things in God. So that's the first thing I would say is we have to let those things be what they are. I think another thing to recognize is that these experiences lead to universal questions. You know, they lead all human beings ask the question, why do I hurt? And what does that say about the sort of creature that I am? What does it say about the world that we live in 
what if there's something beyond these things? It's sitting in the reality and letting the reality be what it is. Also recognizing the possibility that God transcends those things. You know, I I think C.S. Lewis reflected on this really well in Surprised by Joy when he basically said, look, my desire for joy that is unalloyed, that never leaves, doesn't mean I'm going to get it, but it does mean I was made for it. And so what suffering does and grief does is it's a sign to us that we were made for something more. And it leads us to that question, who made me for this and what is he like? You know, and I think that's tremendously helpful because it helps me see that the things I'm struggling with ultimately all find their questions and their answers in God. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to a friend of mine, an older saint who came to hang out with me after my dad died and she was kind of asking me how things have been. And I was like, man, I, I do think that I'm realizing where some of my joy has been misplaced, if you will, and where I'm leaning into the deeper joy, like we're talking about today, just of the reality of the life that's to come. That's just really encouraging because it's a long lasting joy. Like that joy will go on forever, like you're talking about. And Even just recently, I've had a friend who also lost his father, and it's been amazing to see Dr. Griggs how that experience really opened the doors wide for the opportunity to talk about Jesus, what He's done for us, uh, the reality of heaven, and it's been really wonderful to watch the Lord use this suffering in His life to place His faith and trust in Christ, and I can now call Him a brother in Christ and his wife as well. How does knowing that heaven and hell are real and then engaging with the reality of kind of the grief that we've been talking about and suffering influence the way that we press into testifying to the hope that we have in eternity and love the people around us by and through evangelism? Yeah, it's a tremendous question. I mean, I think think the basic thing I would say, the kind of the biggest piece is that it just humbles us tremendously. You know, we recognize that this life does matter Mm -hmm. and that the people that we meet matter and their experiences matter. It should give Christians a kind of gravity. There's a rootedness to our hope. There's a rootedness to our joy that does not deny the seriousness of the life that we live. So it humbles humbles us in that way, uh, but it also humbles us, I think, because if God is the one who is ultimately behind all these things and we're not, that means that the thing we should look for is to be a part of what God is doing in the world. It just takes that, takes it and makes it very simple and practical because what we're looking for is opportunities to love our neighbors, you know, to love them in a way that signals to them God's love that transcends, you know, ordinary, it's experienced in ordinary experiences, but it transcends it. And so that's how I think these things inform evangelism. It gives us a rootedness and a seriousness, but also helps us see opportunities to witness to the deep love of God in Christ that transcends our suffering. Mm. Thank you so much. 
This has just been such an encouraging and hope-filled conversation. You know, you don't think you're going to really walk away from a conversation about hell feeling really encouraged, but (laughs) (laughs) somehow that happened. I would love to know if you have any practical steps for listeners that really want to grow in their understanding of heaven and hell. Um, This could be a resource or it could be maybe an experience that you'd encourage them to seek out. We've talked a lot about imagery, right, and about how we read our Bibles in respect to these things. And I I think one super helpful thing to do is just to start with the words of Jesus. You know, pick one of the Gospels, say pick Matthew, and slow down and pay very careful attention to what Jesus says in the various places where he talks about these things. Instead of getting hung up on the precise imagery he uses and how it all relates together— just ask the question, what's the point that Jesus is making? Mm-hmm. And I think if we did that, you know, if we slowed down, because Jesus talks more about these things than anybody else in the New Testament. Hmm. If we slowed down and we paid attention to his, his words and just asked, what is the point of each one of, the, one of these? That would be a huge practical step forward. That's great. I'm excited to do that myself. Thank you for that tip. That's definitely one of my simple joys is learning and growing in my study of the word and knowing and loving God more. So we ask every guest that comes on the show, uh, just so we can get to know you a little bit better. What are three of your simple joys when it comes to knowing and loving God? One of them is, you know, because of this thing about God caring about all of creation, I just really, I love music. That's a simple joy for me. I love that. I love music. I love all kinds of music. I love listening to music really loud. My wife is a dancer. And so one of the things I do when I'm making dinner and it's time for her to finish her work, she's working from our bedroom right now, is I'll turn the music up really loud. And that's her signal to start shutting things down, come down to the kitchen, dance, have a meal. So I really, I really enjoy that. Okay. So that's one simple joy. Do you have any others? Uh, I'm a nerd. I love philosophy and theology and thinking, thinking deep stuff. And so it's just kind of what I do all the time. So I, a simple joy would be just getting a, you know, a book of essays from a theologian I like and sitting down and and reading one of them. So that's another one. All right. Hit me with your third simple joy. Third simple joy is Premier League soccer, Manchester United. We lived in England for three years. Uh, and my eldest boy caught the soccer bug when we were over there. And so we're Manchester United supporters. Things aren't going great for us right now. It's funny. I told him uh, last week, I was like, who would have known that being a Mizzou fan would prepare me for being a Manchester United supporter? Uh, <laughs> Mizzou fans know how to suffer. The Lord prepares you for what he has prepared for you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I love, love Premier League soccer and Manchester United. Oh, that's really wonderful. Well, it's really neat just to get to talk to you. I know you've had such an influence on some of the great friends of the podcast, like Christine Gordon and Courtney Doctor, who have really just been such wonderful mentors for me in going about this project. And uh, it's neat to see the impact that you have had on them and to get to have a conversation with you. I would love to hear who it is that's had the greatest impact on your walk with the Lord. So it's actually one of these answers that is very simple and at the same time very profound. And I would say it's my wife. Aww. Um, we have been together for 28 years, either dating, engaged, or married. We were high school sweethearts. Uh, neither one of us knew the Lord when we first 
started dating and to see what God has done in my life and in her life and to see the ways that she uses the gifts that God has given her and the ways that she serves our family and the ways that she helps me. She's, aside from Jesus, the greatest blessing I have in my life and has had a profound influence on me and does every day. It is always such an encouragement, I think, for a person like myself who is married to hear that from the men that we have uh, the gift of hearing from on the podcast. It just makes me want to be a better spouse and partner and friend and co-laborer with my husband, Brooks. And I know many women probably feel the same as they listen. So thank your wife for us today. And thank you for joining us on the Journey Women podcast. It's been a joy to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Hunter. It's been great to be with you. We pray that this conversation with Dr. Griggs moves you to testify to the hope that you have in Jesus, especially as we're in the Christmas season. If you found the podcast to be an encouragement to you as you seek to do just that, we would love it if you'd take a few minutes to leave a rating and review on iTunes like this one that says, I have learned and enjoyed listening to this podcast so much over the last few years. I'm grateful for the Lord's work through Journey Women and that it's rooted and grounded so firmly in God's Word. These conversations are theologically rich, deep in truth and conviction, and point me to Christ and a desire to know Him more and to be more like Him. All glory be to Him. Reviews like this help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful as they navigate whatever season or challenge they might be facing. Hey, this episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.